Richard Holloway was Bishop of Edinburgh and Primus of the Scottish Episcopal Church. Former Gresham Professor of Divinity, he is a Fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh and Chairman of the Joint Board of the Scottish Arts Council and Scottish Screen. He has written for many newspapers in Britain, including The Times, Guardian, Observer, Herald and Scotsman. He's also presented several series for BBC television. His last book, Looking in the Distance, was published by Canongate in 2004. Welcome to The Bibliophile. Delighted to be a guest on it. This book of yours, uh, your latest book, called Between the Monster and the Saint, is just like the others of yours, packed with almost every page. There's nuggets of wisdom that, that you can hold on to and buff up and, and get something from. How do you pack all that stuff into these books of yours? That's a kind thing to say. Um, I guess because I read a lot, and I mean, I always say to people that writing really is a conversation with other writers, and I'm sometimes accused of quoting too much, uh, other, uh, gathering other people's flowers. I mean, when I come across something that seems to me to exactly capture something or to get you thinking and moving, uh, the kind of writing I do uh, is one that brings in the harvest of all my other kinds of reading. So I usually say to people... Um, even if I'm rubbish, you'll find something good in the book because I quote a lot. So, um, well, it's a bit like a commonplace book. It's you, you're mm-hmm. putting all sorts of well related thoughts and mm-hmm. ideas together, mm-hmm. all of the the best stuff that's been yeah. said about the topic, yeah. and then and I figure if it if it's challenged and stimulated, comforted, upset me, then it might do that for other people and also because it gets me going I mean I'm exaggerating a bit when I say they're just anthologies of quotes um, because you know they get me thinking mm-hmm. and, uh, and ruminating um, in fact there are fewer quotes probably in that book than in my last looking in the distance the permissions I had to pay were enormous uh, uh-huh. uh, so, uh, well, just what just for the phrases or the just well if you quote a lot of poetry in particular uh, you can spend a lot of money um, getting permission to do it. Not uh, to mention the, just the hassle of tracking yeah, them that's down. Right, and yes, I know. Uh, you need someone to chase them. And my publisher is very good. Strictly speaking, the author should do all that. But my publisher is pretty good at actually doing the donkey work. But in this case, I kind of curtailed quite a lot of that. Mm. But of course, th- there are, in that book in particular, uh, women, uh, women writers behind it who stimulated me to a lot of thought and change in my own approach and I list them in the little introduction you know people like Andrea Dworkin's big book on sex intercourse uh, Hannah Arendt who's been uh, a mentor of mine for years and I'm, I'm quite frank about acknowledging my debt to other thinkers because I think writing as I've said earlier is a conversation with other writers. There's one reason why you never stay anywhere for very long because if you go on reading you go on changing. And you did change too. I mean, I remember in one of your previous books, Looking in the Distance, it had to do with the intolerance that the Anglican Church showed toward homosexuals. And that was really a breaking point for you. It was a bad time. Every ten years, the Anglican, uh, the bishops and the Anglican Communion meet in a big conference called the Lambeth Conference. It used to be held at Lambeth Palace in London. And no longer is. It's, it's usually at the University of Kent in Canterbury. And in 1998, uh, one of the big hot issues was the status of gay and lesbian people in the church. And we'd been through big debates before. The status of women had been the big hot topic 
in 88 and people predicted, prophesied the church would split over it. In 88 we found a way of buying time to get our minds around because these great changes do take time and I'm enough of a realist to know that you can't microwave um, social change. And I thought that in 98 we'd do something like that. We would um, kick it into touch, appoint a commission to keep on studying because that's, that's the traditional way that leaders buy time to, for new ideas to be received. No, it wasn't like that at all. And there was a horrible debate on sexuality um, one afternoon which turned into a hate fest on gay people. Really ugly. Totally yeah. against you know, the, the tenets of the, the church, really, right? Well, yeah, in theory. I mean, uh, it, because you're supposed to love your enemies. And forgive. Um, and, and, do, yeah. and all of that. And e- you can even you can express disagreement. I'm well used to that. I believe that argument and disagreement are one of the ways we, we refine truth and come to new positions. Uh, none of that bothered I'm a Scot, for God's sake. We argue all the time. Mm-hmm. But no, it was not. This was not argument. This was just... A rabid, rabid hatred. I mean, it was. Uh, I won't quote some of the things that were said. And distress. A lot of it was from uh, African bishops uh, who have a particular down on this. And something died in me that afternoon. I mean, it, it, there was a colossal defeat for what I thought was liberal, generous movement yeah. on this, or a world view, or a world yeah, way yeah, of looking at that's right, life. Yeah, yeah. Or, mm. or, or at least having the generosity to disagree without uh, being hateful, Mm -hmm. uh, I realized that something had kind of faded inside me. And I came back to... I I really wanted to leave uh, that evening. Uh, I was ready to drive off at 5 o'clock the next morning. Oddly enough, it was the Archbishop of Canada who stopped me, who was then Michael Peters, a nice man. And he encouraged me to stay on and stay to the end. and, um, And I did. And I came back and I... I, I managed to hang on for another um, 18 months, two years. I wrote a book after that called Godless Morality, uh, which was my first go at trying to get people to rethink these things. I call it keeping a religion out of ethics, because it seems to me that we humans disagree about everything. It's one of the ways that we've, we've worked our way towards agreements and then further agreements. It, it, everything works like that. The trouble is if you bring God in, if you say that this is not my point of view, yeah. this is not the way I see nuclear disarmament or the status of gay people or the status of women, this is God's view, yeah. then how can you argue? Yeah, it's like a known unknown, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So I wrote this book called Godless Morality to try and, as it were, park God. And the interesting thing is, anyway, the number of times we've revised God's opinions on matters <laughs> over the years, which suggests, of course, that we make God in our own image, mm-hmm. uh, which is why I thought, let's part the Almighty out of this and uh, figure the best way to live as humans and the best way to respond. But the trouble with church politics is it's all about God, you see, because it's they've got this confirmed notion somehow that, that there's a conduit between them yeah, they're the middleman. They're the yeah, ones that have the answer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that that kind of something something just kind of drained away. Yeah. So I left uh, about two years, eighteen months after that, and kind of took a sabbatical. I mean, I was I was pretty bruised. I think I must have been in a state of psychological as well as theological shock, yeah. and I needed a break. And I wanted out of an institution that believed in official truth as opposed to having a passion for truth. But the trouble with official truth is that it, by definition, ceases to be truthful when new truth comes along, comes around the, the corner. Or a uh, different truth. Or different yeah. truth. Yeah. Uh, 
and I wrote a series of books after that and I upset a lot of people because I was I was a hopeful figure to a lot of people helping them to stay on as it were in the church and they thought he's gone he's left us and you're a formidable uh, polemicist yeah and I was I was also quite good I think uh, probably in my own struggles finding ways of hanging on in there mm. uh, finding a kind of rhetoric um, that enabled doubters and agonizers to hang on as it were my favorite position was one defined really by the great Castilian philosopher Unamuno in his wonderful book The Tragic Sense of Life when he when he sees faith as a kind of defiance okay it may be a meaningless absurdist universe doesn't come from anywhere isn't going anywhere but let's choose to live as if it didn't mean something and he says man is perishing that may be but let us perish resisting and if it is nothingness that awaits us, let us so live that it will be an unjust fate. I like that kind of swashbuckling kind of It's not like Pascal's... Uh, yeah, the wager. Wager, yeah. yeah. So, but you see, that's not an attitude you would kill people over. It's, it's a kind of wistful uh, deciding to live as though there were meaning in a possibly meaningless universe. Yeah. We might come to that. So I'd always had a kind of an existential take on things, but I wrote... Uh, some books that a lot of people were undermined by and felt that I'd really left, you know, I'd, uh, the lost leader had gone. Uh, obviously, I knew I hurt people and I felt sad about that. Since then, I've kind of mellowed my way back into an on-the-edge position in Christianity. I go to church, uh, I sit at the back, uh, I don't do a lot of church stuff, I don't do much action up at the Holy End. I occasionally will preach because I can still find things to say within the Christian universe of discourse. And as I say in that book, I now see religion as a work of the human imagination, full of splendor and, and terror. So that's the way I... I, I wouldn't try to force it down anyone's throat who thought there was more to it than that, but that's, that's the harmony I've achieved, and it's, it's actually quite a peaceful place to be. You talk about art and the imagination frequently in, mm -hmm. uh, in your book and quote from all sorts of wonderful writers I want to I want to just go through the book a bit if I could mm -hmm. plucking out various uh, here's, a, here's the great uh, art critic Robert Hughes Robert Hughes the art critic meditating on human creativity says it has been said often and truthfully that genius is nothing other than the ability to recapture childhood at will, but this has to include the terrors and desires of childhood, not just its Arcadian innocence. We can see this if we closely observe young children playing on their own, conjuring up populations, mysteries, dangers, singing the word world into meaning. While most of us clamp a heavy lid over the well of our imagination when we emerge from childhood, the artist goes on drawing from it at will. If we are to learn from myth the art of our early imagination as a species, we must ask ourselves, if these are the stories we told ourselves, what were the pressures that prompted them? What are those pressures? Mm -hmm. I think they're the pressures of the human condition. I mean, we, we, we're the only animal, as far as we can tell, and I'm pretty certain this is the case, there's an object of interest to itself. We are interested in the human condition. We know we're going to die. My little dog, Daisy, I don't think knows she's going to die. Self-aware, we're self-conscious. We're self-conscious, self-aware, and therefore we're tragic creatures in a way, because we've 
we've been given this wonderful gift of life. Some of us actually have tragic lives. I haven't, but some people do have a tragic life. But ultimately, uh, we lose it. We die. And lots of good things go from us. I sometimes meditate on what it must have been like in those early humans when when their imaginations were beginning to fire, when this self-consciousness was beginning to grow, looking out in this baffling universe, no longer simply programmed by nature instinctually, mm. but now beginning to notice and observe. Like another layer. Another layer. I mean, mm. we've, got this, we've got these big brains, this, mm. this layer of self-consciousness, but it sits, it floats above a notion of of memories that go way, way back into primeval history mm-hmm. uh, and, and account for the struggles. Uh, civilization is an attempt to try and uh, come to terms with nature and suppress that bitterness, but it's all, it's all in there. Deep atavistic fears, longings, desires, and anxieties. You, and you point to the fact that, that art doesn't necessarily try to explain this, whereas religion, that's religion's problem. It tries to explain it. Religion... Religion's great weakness is giving answers to unanswerable questions, whereas great art simply expresses all that. Mm. I mean, in, in a great novel or a great painting or a great symphony, you represent um, the mystery. You don't try to explain it and account for it. Mm. And great theology doesn't either. I mean, the, I mean, there have been theologians who have resisted that temptation. But there's a kind of weakness in religion. Uh, there's a course called the Alpha Course, um, mm-hmm. wh- which claims to answer every every question. Which is so comforting to so many oh, people, yeah. that's why they... Yeah, but profoundly boring. Imagine going through life knowing the answer to yeah. life's mysteries. Um, and I think that, that just as great... And I think religion is part of art. I think religion mm-hmm. is, is a great art. It's one explanation. It's one, it's one way of, 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 of trying to account for, trying to explain, develop narratives. And you can almost, you can almost feel your way into it. Uh, why is sex so problematic? Well, there was a time when it wasn't, but then, you know, and then so you get the Adam and Eve story, the fall of Eden, mm. um, the shame, and the shame, and all, and all of that. These are narratives that do not explain, but what they do is they. I usually say to people um, that the the loss of Eden is not an Aboriginal event; it's a contemporary event. It's mm. happening in Toronto today. There are men and women falling out with each other, looking over their shoulders at other people. Uh, there are people uh, getting fed up with their current car, their current house, their current lover, um, their current outfit. You know, there's this kind of incessant discontent built into us. And I think art and religion are great ways of actually expressing it and pointing to the dangers inherent in all of that, uh, pleading for a kind of wise, temperate living. So uh, that's why, I mean, I still think religion is a profound carrier of wisdom. Yeah, like the Ten Commandments, you, you can't yeah. go too far wrong by no. observing them. Yeah. Uh, uh, graven images I could leave out, but, but, <laughs> but on the whole, most of them, most of them yeah. carry good solid, good, solid advice. And anyway, you can probably reduce them to um, the golden rule. Do not do to others what you wouldn't have them do to you. Yeah. If we all live by that, my gosh, it'd be a different planet. Uh, just getting back then to what were the pressures that prompted these stories? I suspect the supreme pressure to understand. I mean, it's a bit like being amnesiac and lost. I mean, can you imagine that if you woke up tomorrow wandering the streets or in a hospital bed not knowing who you were, mm-hmm. having lost clues about your... And there are stories about that. I think that, that um, the human 
the fact that we, we came from somewhere we just don't know where yeah. and we don't know where we're going to no. go. No. No. And Gogan's great question is what are we, where are we going, where did we come from, where are we going? After and his uh, daughter and died. His daughter died in Tahiti, uh, he was in Tahiti, his daughter died in Holland and he, he did that great painting, Slash Those Questions, mm. up on the top left hand side. Um, I suspect that that's the origin of religion as of drama. Fear. Fear of uh, you know, fear. Where are think, we going? I think fears behind certain kinds of primitive religion, because one of the things that you would posit if you were just trying to think your way into that, you're looking out maybe in the forests of northern Europe, you've mm-hmm. moved up there, thunder and lightning, predators. Yeah, um, and just see if you, someone that you had loved got mauled by yeah, an animal. Yeah, yeah, or dies in childbirth, and you get the impression there must be some great power behind this, some implacable, mighty power that we have to placate yeah. because at, at the root of a lot of religion not all but the, the, the root of a lot of religion is sacrifice the placation of that so, so uh, and gradually I think over the centuries you kind of refine your understanding so you actually uh, in some cases you refine yourself right out of theism altogether mm-hmm. that there isn't anything out there in that sense but the universe is undoubtedly mysterious and doesn't explain itself which is why I'm not an atheist, because I think atheists, I think, have, have taken a step too far into a kind of certainty. I, I think the universe, why there is something and not nothing, is, I mean, it, that's insoluble. And yeah. even, even if you can get back... You can't back, go either way. No. Even if you get back beyond the Big, ba- the big Bang, you're going to ask, well, where did that come from? Yeah. So if you go into God as the answer... Um, you then have to ask, well, where did God come from? And of course, they, they then allied that, theologians will, because they cheat actually. They say, well, God is self existent, God is the uncaused cause. And so what you've done is you, you've, you've limited by definition there. But if you go into the other, it came from nothing, that's, that's equally bad. Yeah, yeah. What, what came before nothing? What came before nothing? Yeah. And into the history of this extraordinary universe has come consciousness, self-consciousness and has come pity mm. and love and imagination mm. and poetry and so that's why that's why I, I'm still a religious man. I, I think that religion should should stop trying to explain and account for and offer and maybe allow people to celebrate and enter the mystery, offer them tools for exploring it mm. and if they find if they find suggestions they need a, yes, mm-hmm. hints, whispers, mm. things found under rocks little you know, music heard in the room next door, all these little things that suddenly catch us. And I think a lot of good religion does that, but, but there's a lot of bad religion around, and it's based on fear. It's based on this fear of change, of losing something. Well, it's also a power structure. Yeah. 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 Well, of course, I mean, I was in the power structure. I mean, there's yeah. no doubt at, at all. Top of it. The clergy, um, and it's one reason why I sympathize with them, because they, for whatever reason, they feel called to, the, to this job, and that, you know, the few called to fill churches to explain to people, to offer them comfort and advice and yeah, explanation. Yeah, uh, advice on things like sex and marriage. Which, yeah, yeah. Which oh, I know. Totally unqualified to give. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's it's um, and I, I on the whole quite like clergy. They're a, they're an interesting breed, and they go into it for, for very mixed reasons. But they can end up justifying the institution for its own sake. Mm-hmm. Like all, I mean, all structure systems do this. Mm-hmm. You you create an institution to achieve a purpose, and it ends up existing in order to exist. What you've done then, uh, it seems to me, is you've you've left that system, 
And now you're able to talk to a much, much larger flock this way mm -hmm. by, first of all, writing in very elegant and accessible prose and and then working with publishers who who know how to get your mm -hmm. message out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially my publisher, Jamie Bing, who's a, who's a good friend. I mean, uh, Jamie, um, he published uh, Godless Morality in, in 1999. That was the first book we did together, and it's been a wonderful, wonderful relationship. Mm -hmm. so we both happened to be in Edinburgh too. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 He brought this um, a lovely uh, independent publisher, which was on the brink of, of um, going under. Yeah, and he's revived it. We brought so much uh, yeah. vigor and mm -hmm. uh, and uh, intelligence. And, and he got Obama. Which um, I mean, did he? Yes, 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 <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, he's yeah. he published uh, in Britain uh, Obama's two two books. Written before he was even a senator, I think. Well, dreams of my father. Yeah. I'm speaking with Richard Holloway, who most recently is the author of Between the Monster and the Saint. So, what is Between the Monster and the Saint? Us. Can a quick thumbnail sketch of of, of uh, the book? In a sense, you could say there's the monster and the saint in each of us. The good and the bad seed. The, the, the good and the bad seed. Uh, the, the, the pressure. Uh, to go dark or to go light. Most of us are just in the muddled middle. I mean, I think there are undoubtedly some really seriously bad people in history, mm. however you account for them. You know, the great political monsters. And the 20th century had had a prize crop of them. Hitler, Stalin, Mao, people like that. Uh, we've got a handful around at the moment. And, of course, there are the local varieties, the serial killers, the serious psychopaths. And... The book recognizes that there are some people who seem to be uniquely evil, and there are some people who seem to be uniquely courageously able to say no to to, to the power of evil. Mm. And these are the ones I call saints. I'm not using saint in the kind of stained glass window no. definition of the thing. But someone like, was it Bonhoeffer? Bonhoeffer, I put there. Martin Luther King, a man who struggled with, his, with, with sexuality and was being bugged by Herbert by Hoover, mm. FBI, mm. Uh, could easily have been blackmailed. Nevertheless, it didn't stop him pursuing the monster of institutionalized racism in the United States. Mm. Pius Nkubi, Catholic Archbishop in Zimbabwe, who uh, was also sexually frail. And I, I personally don't think sexual frailty is a terrible evil. I mean, as long as it doesn't harm and abuse other people, it can. But it just also happens to be extra strong in, in people who are, who are leaders. Very often it is, and, and they can use it abusively and all of that. Um, and I'm not saying these people have to be exonerated, but the fact is that uh, there's a difference between the, the drives of your own nature. I mean, I, in, in the book I say that weakness is always conscious of itself. Vice never is. Serious corruption, you're not bothered. I mean, a really bad person doesn't have twinges of conscience. Um, yeah, it's like the disposition yeah. of uh, virtue is much more dangerous than the disposition to vice. Because they don't, there's no brakes on it. They think That's they're right. doing yeah. well. Yeah, they're, they're absolutely. They've got the right to do uh, in the name of their idea, their virtue, whatever it is. Deluded and, almost. Yeah. Uh, so, so the saint in, in the narrow definition of the book are the people who stand up to power. I mean, one of the mm. thinkers behind the book is Simone Weil, mm. remarkable French woman, probably starved herself to death in 1945, partly because she over-identified with people in France who were living under under oppression, but she defines force as that X that turns those who are subject to it into a thing. 
and the thing about uh, implacable evil and even the bits of limited evil we all do is we objectify people we turn them into uh, sexual uh, sources of pleasure or we turn them into corpses or we turn them into um, factory fodder whatever she wrote a, a a great essay on the Iliad, which she calls the poem of force, which I, I allude to in the book. And she says there are very, very few people anywhere who have the kind of courage not to respect that and to stand up to it, uh, because it gets you killed. And most of us want to live. Most of us discover, in fact, a lot of fear and there's a lot of coward, mm-hmm. cowardice. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the people who are able, like Mandelsam, the poet, who's, who wrote a poem about Stalin, which I quote in there, uh, these to me are the extraordinary gift of the universe to us and most of us uh, we can go along with the monster we may not ourselves fire the bullets or press the button on the electric chair but by our consent by our uh, complacency we allow these things to happen the, the banality of evil the banality of evil yeah. and in my, uh, my, my country waged war a war I did not believe in mm. it, it brought back torture I mean torture has come back Mm-hmm. into world politics uh, at a time when, and in my name I, I belong to one of the most advanced liberal so-called democracies in Britain, mm-hmm. but my Prime Ministers led us with the, with the President of the United States into a war, mm-hmm. a pointless I think illegal, mm-hmm. terrifying war in Iraq, and in the name of pursuing it, reintroduced torture sexual humiliation sexual humiliation, waterboarding, the lot so it never goes very very far away and I suppose the book is a plea to us to, to be alert to the things that can be done not by us but in our name right and, and to, uh, to try to be more saintly yeah yeah. here's, uh, here's a quote uh, from you uh, what can save us from despair at our own emotional incapacity is the fact that we can make a start a change by understanding ourselves we may lack the innate ability to be empathetic to identify with the pain of others but if we succeed in touching our own feelings reaching our own grief and shame we can start to practice projective identification with others in my final chapter I try to show how we can measure the way in which force has used us and through us used others so how do you do that in the final chapter? Mm -hmm. There's a phenomenon, I interviewed a woman uh, this summer at the Edinburgh Book Festival, a young neuroscientist whose name I've forgotten at the moment. She's written a book on cruelty. She, she again traces this back to this great ocean that's underneath us all, this ocean of memories, the collective unconscious, our you know, long, long prehistory before consciousness popped in and looked, looked around this, this alarming universe. And she points to a phenomenon that I hadn't found a name for, but I'd recognized. She calls it otherization. One of the ways in which we are cruel, able to be cruel to others is we otherize them. They're not like us, you know, they're, they're, they're packies, they're black people, they're fags, they're bitches. You, you give yourself permission to do the terrible thing by otherizing, by doing the dehumanizing. The axis of evil. The axis, all of that, yeah, all of that kind mm. of rhetoric, mm. um, because it's easier to shoot people up if you're not in touch with their humanity. The book ends with a plea to all of us to get in touch with our own fallible, flawed, broken humanity, thereby maybe by finding, because a lot of us aren't very compassionate towards ourselves. Mm. Mm. We're riddled with guilt, we've done things we're ashamed of, mm. we beat up on ourselves, we think we're 
uh, in the language of the prayer book, miserable sinners. Low self-esteem. Low self-esteem. Mm. All of that can do terrible things to our relationships. Uh, so uh, the book, to some extent, is a plea for pity, but starting at home. Um, I don't quote, I think, in it, but I love the lines from Gerard Manley Hopkins. My own heart, let me more have pity on. Let me live to my sad self hereafter, kind. So the book is a plea to that kind of kindness, because if you can put yourself in touch with the humanity of the other, you cease otherizing them, and you may you thereby create a bond, the bond of our humanity, which is the biggest bond that we have. So it, it's a plea to, to live empathetically rather than fenced off against the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it, we will always live precariously because we're frightened, anxious creatures. We're full of lusts and longings we don't entirely understand. Most of us don't know very much about ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's possible to go through life knowing really what makes you tick. Uh, which is why when when people get convicted in British courts because we've got legislation against hate crimes on racism and things like that, when they go through a bit of retraining, they actually light bulbs go on, yeah, yeah, I do hate fags. Where does that come from? Mm. Am I afraid of my own sexual nature? Yes, I do. I do hate women. I want to be... What's that about? Mm. Is it because of this, that? And... So it, it's also a plea for self-knowledge. I mean, Plato said the unexamined life wasn't worth living. I've spent quite a lot of my own life trying to understand the, the way my life has surprised me. Yeah, it's dramatic. It's, I mean, it's about as dramatic as, as, it, as it gets. A lot of people start out in a marriage, for instance. They think, yeah, the Hollywood picture, the romantic picture. They don't know who they are. They're doing and it for a whole bunch of different reasons. Any that, and and gradually, and they may... Uh, one of the most moving documentaries I ever saw, there was a famous siege in Grosvenor Square, in, the, in the, uh, an embassy in Grosvenor Square in London. Libyan terrorists took a bunch of people captive. You remember it. There was a famous uh, SES. They went in and, and relieved them all. One guy was sent out. Yeah, it was during, I think, Margaret Thatcher's uh, era. One guy was sent out, and when they made this documentary, I watched it, they made it about ten years ago, maybe, um, and he was interviewed, a broken man, and a very honest. He said, I made a great discovery that day, a terrible discovery. I discovered I was a coward. He fell apart. Mm. He was with this bunch of people. I don't know what he was doing in the embassy. He was with this bunch of people. These guys, these terrible guys, came in with guns and bossed them all around. And he simply fell apart, went into panic attacks, anxiety attacks, uh, blubbed, and he was such a bloody nuisance to the hostage takers, they threw him out. So he said, I didn't know I was a coward. I could have lived my life not knowing that if those circumstances hadn't erupted into my life. And uh, he was, uh, he was very hard on himself, but um, Peter, I don't think Peter the Apostle knew that he would be a deserter, because he was a a blustery kind of guy though they all forsake you he said to Jesus I will die for you there he is in the temple courtyard 
three times um, and it breaks him up uh, and that's why I think we should all have a kind of provisional modesty about because we never know how we're going to be tested we may discover that we too are capable of doing things that go against our own grain go against our own image of ourselves or, or the thing that we really want to be we discover that we're, we're not loyal the, the, I think it was Arnold Bennett that talked about aligning your behaviour with your morals that's why thieves aren't happy because they're acting in a way that they know deep down there's something that they're doing that's wrong and that's why they're miserable unless they can actually be kind of Robin Hood type thieves and that becomes their ethic Mm. Uh, maybe doing it for a good reason but yeah so it's all of that and as you get older and get on in life, you realize the naivety you had, the things that you thought, that because you, you idealize them, you wanted to be them. You thought you could, but in fact you discover that you can't, that you're not that person, that you're not a very good person, or that you're not a very brave or a strong person, uh, that you cave in. So what you're saying is that it's better to, to be proactive in that regard, to find out who you are, yeah. rather than having it smashed into your face at times. That and but but also maybe don't be too cocky because you 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 may you may be found out. You may not know it yourself, but you may in fact be found out by the way you have lived your life. A friend of mine, and if I had this, I would have put it into the book. I put it into my next book. A friend of mine who's a a Norse scholar in the University of Aberdeen sent me an essay she'd written on classical Norse mythology. Uh, and the use of the metaphor of, of the of the loom of weaving weaving your mm-hmm. life, and I was fascinated by the difference between that way of understanding living, which which believes that your actions reveal yourself to you, you are who you are, and the choices you make you're not making; they're simply revealing your nature, so that you can understand it, what it is and but put language to but, it. Well, yeah, but you may not like it. You're actually yeah. discovering that this is who you are. You know mm-hmm. that I'm not. I'm not brave, I'm not clever, I'm not empathetic, I'm not uh, chaste, I'm not uh, any of those things. Uh, and to some extent it's quite a realistic thing. And you compare that to Christian idealism where you're given one template of morality and you're supposed to be like that and you discover that you're not capable of it. And it seems to me that somehow a balance between the two because you want ideals but you also want realism. And I love the idea that your life reveals yourself to you if you're self-aware if you're not it doesn't I think most people most people looking back are full of regret they have a lot of regret and what a sad way to live your life what a sad way to live your life because they didn't they didn't think it would be like that they didn't think they'd let their kids down they didn't think they would fail at this or fail at that but it's, it's sounding kind of miserable, though. I mean, there's something to be said for being confident in your life, too. Yeah. There's something to be... Even if it is an effort or or you're sort of faking it, there's something to be said for believing in yourself, sure. even, even if you've got doubts. Knowing yourself and trying to live as confident, but, but not live mm-hmm. delusionally. Loving yourself. Mm-hmm. Forgiving yourself. Um, uh, we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Mm-hmm. A lot of us don't love ourselves enough. It's one reason why I think there's so much hatred, because a lot of people who hate themselves then become haters. So the book is is a gradual plea for self-awareness, self-forgiveness, and through that, tolerance and compassion towards others. Final question. Tolerance and respect of others, but also the way that we treat animals. Mm. You talk about that Mm. quite quite frequently in the book. One of the things I often say to groups when I'm talking to them, 
to keep us institutionally and personally and religiously modest is if you study history you realize the things that we look back on and say my god how could christianity have justified slavery for 1800 years the oppression of women uh, the killing of gays and all of those things and we look back and i usually say what do you think in a hundred years time posterity will look back and say how on earth could they let themselves away with it i think that apart from the ruination of the planet cruelty to animals would be up there you know our lust for cheap food the fact that that we deprive the animals that we live off i'm not arguing for a kind of universal vegetarianism i think life is a tragic symbiotic food chain in a way mm-hmm. but what gives it's us the right to deny hens chickens a life turkeys the, the turkeys that i enjoy at thanksgiving and christmas i want them to have had a life uh, before they end up on my dining room table but uh, the intensive food farming that we do they do not have a life i quote an exploration of a turkey farm in the book that's absolutely sickening i think that'll be one of the cruelties that and, and you see again it illustrates the main thesis because we don't see that we go to the local supermarket and we buy a cheap chicken mm-hmm. and we don't we never go into one of these hideous chicken farms that stink of ammonia where there's no natural light where they don't have they're confined in a tiny yeah. they peck it pellets they peck it one another they're miserable have you seen the movie food inc not yet supposed to yeah. illustrate just yeah. this point do you have a particular passage in the book that you think encapsulates what we've just been talking about for the audience i actually quite like the end of the book because um i was a, a, a graduate student in in the united states in 1967-68 and 68 was the terrible summer martin luther king was assassinated robert kennedy was assassinated i was in uh, san francisco the day robert kennedy died I'd been on a trip west and I was taking the train to Flagstaff, Arizona. I wanted to see the Grand Canyon, rent a car, see a bit of the old west, brought up in cowboy movies, all of that. Been a devastating year, devastating summer. American cities were in flames, riots everywhere. And I end the book like this. The day after the assassination of Robert Kennedy, I took the train from Los Angeles where he had been shot to Flagstaff in Arizona. The summer of 1968 was a turbulent and violent episode in American history. The Vietnam War was at its height and the mood in the country was jagged and angry. Like everyone else that day, I was in a pensive mood as I gazed out of the window of the speeding train. I picked up the book on my lap, Arthur Kiesler's Darkness at Noon. The epigraph came as a gift that calmed my spirit. It was from Dostoevsky. Man, man, one cannot live quite without pity. If my book has a single message, that is it. Though I prefer the stronger word empathy, the ability not only to feel for the afflicted, but to feel with them. It is the possible remedy for the knowing and unknowing cruelty we do against ourselves and the other creatures with whom we briefly share the earth. one cannot live quite without pity however great as that word is i do not want it to be my last word my last word has to be gratitude gratitude for being gratitude for the fact of a street corner at all which is an allusion to a quotation from a great book uh, the line of beauty by alan hollinghurst and it's about a, a gay man who is pretty certain 
he's he's got AIDS, he's HIV positive, and he go he leaves the house knowing that that he's pretty certain, and he suddenly realizes his unconditional love of the world, mm. his love of being, gratitude for a street corner at all, and I quote that in here. It shows ingratitude and a lack of imagination to spend the life we've been given stamping literally or metaphorically on the lives of others or sneering contemptuously at how they have chosen to make sense of theirs. It is a harsh world, indescribably cruel. It is a gentle world, unbelievably beautiful. It is a world that can make us bitter, hateful, rabid, destroyers of joy. It is a world that can draw forth tenderness from us as we lean towards one another over broken gates, another allusion to a great Tennessee Williams play about sad people who support one another and lean towards one another over broken gates. And I love these mm. characters in literature who are wounded and flawed and find support in, in others and, and compassion. It is a world of monsters and saints, a mutilated world, but it is the only one we have been given. We should let it shock us, not into hatred or anxiety, but into unconditional love. That's how the book ends. I love life. I love my Scotland. I love your Canada. I love, I love literature, people. Uh, and I think that if we somehow just heated up the gratitude factor in life, uh, we would do less damage to each other. Well, I'm very grateful you spent the last hour talking to me about your book. And thank you for writing it. Thank you for talking to me, Nigel. It's been a, a rare privilege and a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Richard Holloway was Bishop of Edinburgh and Primus of the Scottish Episcopal Church. He has written uh, for many newspapers in Britain, including the Times, Guardian, Observer, Herald, and Scotsman. Uh, the book that we've been talking about is called Between the Monster and the Saint. Thanks again.